Amen. Thank you. Had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear your word. That we would come to this deep well and that we would draw living water from it this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jenna Jameson. She was born in 1974 in Las Vegas, of course. She is regarded as the queen of the adult film industry and the most popular starlet in the world, having appeared in more than 100 films. She began dancing at the age of 16 by lying about her age and taking the braces off her teeth with pliers so that she might look older. 
Before she graduated from high school, she was making over $2,000 a night. She has since gone on to become a pop culture icon, having appeared as herself in the television show The Family Guy, and her voice appears in the popular video game Grand Theft Auto Vice City. In 2004, she published her book, the title of which cannot be repeated here, but it spent six weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. But here's where her story gets weird. Not long ago, VH1 Confessions, VH1 is a music channel, and they have a show called Confessions, which is a biography show on famous people. And they were airing a biography of Miss Jameson. To be honest, it's a pretty sad story. Her dad was not a great guy. She was repeatedly assaulted and taken advantage of from a young age by older men and did not have a mom to help raise her. And it was a typical poor, broken family produced as an abused girl who ends up using her beauty to pay her bills kind of a story. But what was most curious about her story was her adamant declaration that she is a Christian. In 2003, she married a studio owner in a Roman Catholic ceremony. The biography included a tour of her 6,700-square-foot Spanish-style palace in Arizona, and lining the walls are numerous religious icons and artwork. And showing off her religious artwork, she declared herself a devoted Catholic Christian, despite the fact that she's done films that have a lot more to do with hell than with heaven. For the record, I've never seen one of her films and pulled these facts from uh, a blog by Pastor Mark Driscoll in Seattle. He got most of them from Wikipedia. Back to the story. Mrs. Jameson says in this biography show that she would give it all up if she could just be a wife and a mother because her deepest desire in the world was to be a monogamous married mom. She even said if she became a mom, she would leave the industry and never do another film. Her and her husband spent two years trying to fulfill her dream of becoming a mom with no success. And the latest word is that they are separated and she is now seeing some other uh, rock star celebrity that I've never heard of. And in the end, it's an incredibly confusing biography. On the one hand is the fact that Jenna Jameson, though as depraved as her movie title suggests, remains an image bearer of God. As a result, she believes in God. She believes in judgment for sin by God. And she deeply longs to fulfill her feminine role as a wife and a mother. Yet on the other hand, she remains the world's best-known adult film star. And I guess the entire point that stuck out is that we sinners are a crazy bunch of conflicted people, torn between the dignity of creation and the depravity of the curse, who, apart from Jesus saving us uh, from ourselves and renewing our minds, are a hopeless mess. So what would Jesus say to Jenna Jameson? I think we get a pretty good idea from today's passage as Jenna Jameson is simply a modern Samaritan woman. 
And we get an amazing picture of how Jesus deals with sinners by listening in very carefully on his conversation with the first Samaritan woman. So we come to this story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's interesting to note we've left the scene of the nighttime visit with Nicodemus, the man who had it all. And the setting has changed to an encounter with a woman who has nothing at all, and it happens in broad daylight. It's high noon in Samaria, and we're watching how Jesus handles the showdown at Jacob's well. But before we see what Jesus says, we need to understand how and why he went there in the first place. And this is important because it shows us that Jesus changes direction. Jesus changes direction. That's the first blank there in your outline. In verse 1, we're told the Pharisees have reappeared on the scene. Obviously, Jesus felt that having them come out to harass him would be too much interference at this point so early in his ministry. And he must have known that they uh, criticized John the Baptist, And now that he's getting his own ministry started, they'll be coming after him too. The Pharisees would be upset by his message, and they'd be jealous of his growing popularity. And therefore, Jesus decides to move away from Judea, the area around Jerusalem, to Galilee, which is the area around his hometown of Nazareth. And he moves in order to continue his ministry. And there's a good lesson for us right there. Sometimes we need to change direction in our lives in order to continue in our ministry. We need to stop and reevaluate what we're doing so we'll continue to be productive in whatever role, whatever ministry God has called us to. So we see Jesus changes direction and he heads for Galilee. But on the way, we find him in unexpected territory dealing with unexpected people. And normally, Jewish people don't travel through Samaria. Essentially, you have Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. And in the middle is Samaria. And Galilee is kind of shaped like a tooth. It comes down around Samaria. So people would either go to the coast to travel up, or they'd go to the Jordan River and travel up that way. And it was a lot longer and took more time, um, but they wouldn't go through Samaria. They would take the longer route, normally around the Jordan River. And uh, they would go from Jerusalem, um, they would go to Jericho, then follow the river up to the Sea of Galilee, and then come back into the countryside. Anything to avoid going into Samaria. Because these people hated each other. They argued routinely. The Jews had even gone in and burned down the Samaritan's temple. Both sides always thought the other side was wrong. In John 8, when the Jews wanted to insult Jesus, they called him a Samaritan. That was like the worst insult they could think of. Of course, Jesus just brushed the insult aside because he loved the Samaritans too. And he simply had no problem leaving his daily routine to be with people outside of his normal contacts. And sometimes we find ourselves in unexpected territory dealing with unexpected people. 
We might find ourselves with people outside of our daily routine and our normal contacts. And the way we treat them has a lot to say about who we are and who this church is. But notice Jesus had no difficulty dealing with this unusual contact in his life because he asked questions. Verse 7, Jesus asks questions. He shows us the best way to get to know people is to show a real interest in them by asking questions and then listening to them carefully. He starts by breaking down the barriers and asking for a drink of water. But the person he's asking is a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation. First, she's a Samaritan, and as verse 9 says, Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. That's a barrier one coming down. Second, she's a woman, and any self-respecting first-century Jewish man didn't talk to women in public. Didn't happen. But it happens here, and barrier two comes down. Third, she's a moral outcast with a bad reputation, and no one, Jew or Samaritan, wants to be seen talking with her. But Jesus is talking with her, and barrier three comes down. And I imagine that she's stunned. She probably can't believe her ears. This man is talking to me? I mean, most of the time she's trying to avoid people. After all, she's drawing water at noon. It says the sixth hour. That would be noon. People gather water when it's cool out, either earlier in the morning or later in the evening, but not during the hottest part of the day. You see, people gathered around the well, the local watering hole, to catch up with each other and to exchange gossip, just like they do today. And if you didn't want to deal with people, then you would go at noon because no one else would be there then. And you wouldn't have to participate in the conversation, that is, if anyone was willing to talk to you in the first place. And it was far easier to just not deal with the situation. And even though it's hot out, go to the well when you could be by yourself. No reason to listen to what other people are saying about you. And for a span of five husbands, she's come to this well, always at noon, always alone. But this time, there's someone there. Jesus is there. And she asks him, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. And she asks the question, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answers her with one of his characteristic non-answer answers. He answers her by saying that, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, Romans 6, Ephesians 2 tell us his eternal life. And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, the fact that he's the Savior, the Messiah, the one who gives eternal life, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now repeatedly in the Old Testament, the phrase living water is used of God. In Jeremiah 2, God declares, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And in Isaiah 12, he says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
And we see that again and again in the Old Testament, in Psalm 42, in Jeremiah 17, Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 47, Isaiah 55. This phrase about living water is used again and again and again to call people back to God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's gently, subtly, quietly calling her back to God. And if she only recognized who he was, if she only asked for what he had, if she only received what he gave, then and only then would she be satisfied and have her thirst quenched. Likewise, as we go through our daily routine, are we aware of Christ's presence in our lives? Because Jesus often works in the same way in our lives, gently, subtly, quietly, calling us back to God. And do we recognize who he is? Are we asking for what he has? Are we receiving what he gives? Because only by doing those things, only by drawing on the living water of Christ, can our thirst be quenched and can we be satisfied. Perhaps we're not so different from this woman as much as we might like to think we are. And even though she doesn't get it right off the bat, notice that Jesus doesn't give up on her because Jesus attracts interest. Jesus attracts interest. Verse 11, the woman remarks, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's missed the point of what Jesus has said. She's thinking of the physical while he's talking about the spiritual. But she's not alone. Because remember back in chapter 3, Nicodemus, he did the same thing. Jesus talked about the need for spiritual rebirth. And he thought about physical birth. And he sort of missed the point initially. And now she's looking at Jesus with bewilderment. And her doubts come right to the surface. This well is deep. You have no bucket. Therefore, you aren't getting any of this water. So, stranger, where are you going to get this living water from anyway? And then she goes on, verse 12, and it's sort of a besides, who do you think you are kind of a statement. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Obviously, Jacob was one of the great patriarchs of Israel. He gave us the well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And she, you see, she's tied to this well. It's an important well. It came from Jacob. It was given to them all the way back in Genesis. And she's bound to her traditions. But like Nicodemus, who is equally bound to tradition as a Pharisee, her respect for the past is preventing her from receiving from God in the present. And despite the mess she's made of her life, she's leery of changing direction at this stage in the game. And again, Jesus answers her patiently, just as he did with Nicodemus. He explains the superiority of what he's offering. The water Jesus offers satisfies more than immediate needs. As valuable as the water of this well was, it only quenches your thirst for a little while. There's no permanent satisfaction. Physical water quenches physical thirst temporarily. Living water quenches spiritual thirst eternally. 
It satisfies the longing of your soul. It fills the void in your heart. And living water has a permanent supply. It's not affected by drought. It never runs out. Living water has an abundant effect. It wells up. It says it springs up to eternal life. It overflows out of our hearts and it affects those around us. As Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Now, perhaps it's appropriate to note that this is the way of the world. Temporary satisfaction. It's not just the water supply has to be renewed every day, but also the food supply has to be obtained again, day after day after day. And the way of the world is the way of permanent dissatisfaction. It's just not possible to be completely satisfied all the time. Everything we have is temporary. With all of its sophistication, the world today is bored, discontent, and unhappy. In Jesus contrasts this dissatisfaction with what he offers us. When anyone turns to Christ for salvation and receives the gift of God of eternal life that Christ alone can give them, then something permanent has happened to them, something that lasts forever. But before that can happen with this woman, Jesus acknowledges her past. Verse 15, Jesus acknowledges her past. See, the woman responds to Jesus in verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And she's still stuck in the material world. But nonetheless, she likes what she hears. There's a sound of pity in her voice. She's asking Jesus to provide for her so I will not be thirsty and to protect her from embarrassment so I won't have to come back here to draw water. And at least she's admitting her need. If she didn't admit her need, she'd never be able to receive what Jesus had to give. And that's important because in our world, the epitome of success is a need-free life. We want to be financially free, pain-free, stress-free, hassle-free. In our world, our world's goal ultimately is to be God-free with our lives safely under our own control. Although, I don't think there's anything safe about that. But we want to owe no one, depend on no one, be hurt by no one, need no one, not even God. But the truth is, it's an impossible dream. We can never be need-free. We weren't made that way. We need the Lord, and he wants us to depend on him. He's the one who can heal the sick, befriend the lonely, give rest to the weary, forgive the guilty, and give water to the thirsty. But as soon as this woman seems receptive to what Jesus offers, he puts his finger on the cause of her relentless thirst, her sin, and he lays it on the line. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And you can almost hear Why'd you have to bring that up? She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. 
what you have said is true. And he's actually commending her for being honest. And while he points out her sin, he's not beating her up with it. He thanks her for speaking truthfully. And yet she's forced to face her immorality and her need for repentance. And Jesus does the same thing today. His spirit forces us to face our sin. And yet he continues to love us even while he's pointing out the sin that we so desperately want to keep hidden from him. He makes clear the necessity of repentance, of turning away from our sin and asking him for forgiveness. And we also need to be truthful about our sins when we confess them to the Lord. He doesn't want us to sugarcoat them or rationalize them or pretend they're not as bad as they really are. God wants us to go ahead and deal with our sin now. He tells us to come as we are. No need to wait until we're a better person. No need to continue living with the weight of a guilt-ridden past on our shoulders. We come to him and admit our need, and then Jesus corrects our misunderstanding. Jesus corrects misunderstanding, verse 19. Because the Samaritan woman, both then and now, has misunderstandings. Notice misunderstanding one. The first thing that happens is she tries to change the subject. Conversation starting to hit a little too close to home. It's a little too close for comfort. So she, she raises the subject of Jacob, you know, talk a little theology, a little Bible. It's always easier to talk theology than it is to deal with sin. It's always easier to talk theology than it is to live out our theology. Because our knowledge always exceeds our obedience. Our knowledge always exceeds our obedience. And that's hard to face. Even when we come to the Bible, if you look at the questions on the back of your insert, it's far easier to ask, what is being said here, than to ask, how does it apply to me? So first she tries to change the subject. Second misunderstanding, she's really unsure of what Jesus is saying, so she tries to guess at the truth. She thinks location of worship is what's important. And Jesus corrects her misunderstanding. First he lets her know that worship is changing. Location is becoming irrelevant. He tells her, verse 23, that the change has already begun. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Worship at the temple in Jerusalem, as well as worship in Samaria, is being replaced by worship of Christ. So let's not worry about where we worship. Let's concentrate on who we worship. Secondly, he questions the attitude of worship. Is your worship coming from the heart? Or is it a mechanical going through the motions weekly ritual? And Jesus is making it clear that the manner of worship is far more important to God than the location, the building, the rituals, the traditions of worship. Verse 24, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God seeks those who worship him in spirit and truth, those who worship him with their whole heart. Notice here that Jesus says our worship must be in spirit and truth. He's not merely saying it'd be a good idea for people to worship like this. He's saying it's absolutely necessary. 
You know, we often feel, particularly I think as Americans, that worship is an individual matter. You know, each of us can choose how to worship however we want. And nobody can tell us otherwise. And Jesus is denying that. He's saying our worship must be like the one we are worshiping. God is spirit and God is truth. And we have to worship him accordingly. And for the Samaritan woman to do so, Jesus reveals himself. Verse 25, Jesus reveals himself. What we see here at the end of our passage is that Jesus makes it clear um, who this woman is speaking with. I mean, she's trying to hedge her bets by saying, you know, she'll wait for the Messiah. Thank you very much. No need to decide now. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus lets her know that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And you need to decide now. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There is no reason for you to wait. There's uh, no need to put it off. You need to decide now. He lets her know that he is the great I am and the one who explains all things. And you need to decide. And the Apostle John has given us a vivid contrast in chapters 3 and 4. If you remember chapter 3, we had Nicodemus, a scholar, respected, rich, powerful, orthodox, theologically trained. They probably called him Reverend Doctor. Not that did any good, but... In chapter 4, we see this Samaritan woman. Unschooled, without influence, despised, poor, unorthodox in her beliefs, a first century Jenna Jameson. And both of them need Jesus. To the Samaritan woman, this stranger at the well. First he's a Jew, then he's Sir, then he's a prophet, and now she sees him for what he really is, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. He told her that if she knew who he was, that she would ask him for living water. Well, now she knows. And the water jar she'd come to fill sits empty on the ground, but the heart she hadn't come to fill is overflowing with living water. She came only for water, but instead she met Jesus. And once again, this is not a call to a vague, uncertain belief but active and specific trust and unwavering commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The alternatives are clear and simple. Believe in the Son and have living water, eternal life, or reject the Son and remain under God's wrath, trying to live as a broken cistern that doesn't hold water. And it's a matter of belief versus unbelief, receiving Christ versus rejecting Christ. Over and over and over again, the Apostle John is showing us that the Lord Jesus Christ is really and truly the Son of God. And he's bringing dramatic change to our lives. And if we believe in him, then we'll receive eternal life. But if you want living water, you have to be thirsty. You have to be thirsty. Natalie Babette has a wonderful story and a wonderfully titled story. It's called The Search for Delicious. 
And in her story, a king commissions his prime minister to write a dictionary for the kingdom. Things start off very well. It's the prime minister. He works through the A, Bs, and Cs, all, all those words. You know, affectionate is your dog. Calamity is saying no to the king, you know. And then he gets to the word delicious and obviously observes the prime minister. Delicious is fried fish. When the king learns of that definition, he objects. He says, no, delicious is a bright red delicious apple. And the queen says, no, delicious is Christmas pudding. And so they send a young boy, Van Galen. They send him out to poll the entire kingdom as to the meaning of delicious. But every person has a different definition, and they start arguing about it, and conflict breaks out, and false rumors start to spread that the king's poll is intended to harm the citizens rather than to find consensus. And eventually, war breaks out. And the evil hemlock plugs the king's water supply in order to overthrow the king and to turn all the people against the king. And when the people can no longer draw water, they become desperately thirsty. They question their king's sovereignty. They question his goodness. But in the end, the king triumphs and the evil hemlock is defeated and the water supply is restored. And as the water comes pouring into the kingdom, the people just clamor into the stream. They jump in, they dive in to the stream and they start laughing and drinking their fill. And one man stands up and says, delicious. And another says, yes, yes, it's delicious. And on the shore, standing the prime minister and the king Delicious, said the prime minister, now understanding, is a drink of cool water when you're very, very thirsty. The king and everyone agreed. And all of a sudden, need and pleasure coincided and delight ensued. And yes, it's true. If you were to ask a crowd of people what is delicious, various tastes would come to the fore. But if a famine threatened life, and if they were cut off from water, taste would give way to need. And a cup of cold water would then be delicious. And God reminds us that he is the living water. And that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. And how thrilling it will be for you when you can enjoy that relationship with him that engenders both delight and fulfillment. The Bible tells us of a person who was hungry and thirsty, who dreamed he was at a banquet. And when he awakened, he was more hungry and thirsty than ever before. And many of the tastes of life that the world offers us leave us dreadfully hungry and thirsty. But when you taste the life Jesus offers you, you will find out how wonderful and true is his gift of living water, eternal life. You will cry out, this is everlastingly delicious. The Samaritan woman was thirsty, and she knew it. And she came to Christ, and he quenched her thirst with living water. Jenna Jameson is thirsty, and I think she knows it. And I'm not totally sure if she's really come to Christ or not. But I know if she she does, he will quench her thirst with living water. And you and I are to be thirsty as well. We are just as big sinners as these two Samaritan women, even if our sins are neither as public or professional. You see, we're subject to an even greater danger than they. 
the great danger to be thirsty and not know it. For then you won't know that you have a thirst that desperately needs to be quenched. You need to know that we're all sinners. And you need to know that sin makes us thirsty. And to you, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And if you are thirsty, and if you come to Jesus and drink, then you too will cry out, this is everlastingly delicious. We need to pray.